Hello, and welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here, as always, with the always insightful Daniel Larison to engage current foreign policy and national security headlines, rip them out of their blobby establishment thread, and try to see things and explain things the way they really are. If you haven't already, please check out Daniel's You Know Me, a Substack newsletter and subscribe. He is one of the best realist thinkers out there, and I'm proud to have edited and promoted his work over the last 10 years. Today, we will be talking to Lyle Goldstein of Defense Priorities about the rising tensions in the Taiwan Strait. But first, let's turn to The Atlantic Magazine, that bastion of elite liberal democratic hive thinking, the ultimate gatekeepers and enforcers of conventional media and cultural orthodoxy. In a few words, come here to feed your bias, go elsewhere to learn anything new. Scratch that. I learned plenty in this recent article by Dominic Tierney, the rise of the liberal hawks. Subhead, they picked the right side. Tierney is a professor at Swarthmore and author of a book called The Right Way to Lose a War, America in an Age of Unwinnable Conflicts. What I learned here is how far these center-left establishmentarians will go to rationalize their willingness to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian and call anyone who suggests that this is not the way to go is a right-wing Trumpazoid, unworthy of the label anti-war or non-interventionist, as their motivations are too vile, too self-serving, too fascist. Tierney begins his essay by acknowledging that the left has often been skeptical of military intervention. He deliberately invokes Martin Luther King and his anti-Vietnam speech in 1967 as what a pure war opposition should look like. This is a bit of throat clearing to show that progressives still are the most righteous when it comes to dissent over war, and they have their saints and martyrs to prove it. He then goes on to explain that the Republican support for the military is waning, not because their sons and daughters, wives and husbands are disillusioned after fighting Washington's loser wars for the last 20 years, but because Trump is mad at the military because it wouldn't serve as his personal praetorian guard. Plus, the military is too woke now and the right doesn't like it. So they're just turning off from it just like that. Furthermore, Trump likes Putin because Putin is a strong man and a nationalist, and he doesn't brook no sass about LGBT and diversity and gender equity. So conservatives are not only anti-military, but pro-Russian. And that's why they've taken this absolutely immoral position on the war. It's as simple as that. Meanwhile, progressives are finding more things to love about the military. And I'm quoting directly here, expressing a new gratitude for an institution that understands the value of diversity, cares about the rule of law, and was willing to stand up to Trump when the future of democracy was most in danger. At a time of rampant conspiracy theories like QAnon, liberals appreciate that the military operates in a world of tangible threats and complex logistics and has a basic respect for reality. Hoo-wee! Last week, The military was a cesspool of racism, sexism, and extremism. Now, it is the anti-Trump garden of progressive delights. Wow. All because, in Tierney's words, the U.S. military is the world's anti-fascist insurance policy. The insurance premiums may look outlandish, and most of the time we don't need the policy until one day we do. If you need to ship M777 howitzers, To Ukraine, the military-industrial complex has its uses. 
I'm not sure what bugs me the most about this article, Dan, the idea that the diminishing popularity of the military can be so easily defined as a Trump phenomenon and a casualty of the culture wars, or that a supposed international relations expert is peddling such gross categorical displays of nonsense as when he says at the end, quote, today we face a different world and a stark choice. Zelensky, Ukrainian progressives, and the European Union, or Putin, Trump, and Tucker Carlson. The left picked the right side. Put that way, I'm not sure I would pick either side. So where does that leave me? The Island of Misfit Toys? An Atlantic mag- magazine re-education camp? Is this what the abyss looks like? Well, it, <laughs> it, it looks pretty grim. It's the, the I mean, you, you went through a lot of the, the problems with the piece, the, the <laughs> And no, and, and I think you you hit a lot of the, the right points. Uh, the the thing that is really quite ridiculous about it is that right from the start he draws this comparison between Martin Luther King denouncing the Vietnam War and congressional Democrats voting for arming Ukraine, which are obviously two very different things. I mean, first of all, King isn't in government or wasn't in government at the time. Uh, he was vocally opposing a policy that was embraced by the leadership of the Democratic Party at that time. <laughs> It's not like the Democratic Party in government was anti-war in 1966, just the opposite. And when he attacked the war, when King attacked the war, he would have been what part of what Tierney called the leftist fringe. He does allow us how there are, in fact, people on the left who don't like the current policy, but he dismisses them as kooks, essentially. Uh, and, and one of the ways that he is able to make these sweeping claims about the left uh, being for the, the policy is that he ignores a lot of the distinctions among progressives uh, in terms of the views that they have about what the policy should be. So, for instance, you'll you'll have progressives who think that providing military assistance to Ukraine is justified or at least defensible, uh, but worry about escalation. You'll have others that think uh, maybe we shouldn't even be doing that much. You have others that will say that we shouldn't even be doing the sanctions because they're causing so much disruption and, and harm to innocent people. And so you, there's a whole range of views on the left, likewise on the right, uh, that all and all this gets smushed together uh, so that everybody left of center is suddenly transformed into a liberal hawk. And it's so it's, it's very it's very sloppy interpretation of the political landscape and in terms of, of what people are actually saying. Uh, and and then it's this sort of bizarre rewriting of the history of the Democratic Party at the same time, as if the Democratic Party was staunchly anti-war when they were running one of our biggest wars in history. So it's it's a it's a it's a mess of a piece, uh, and it doesn't it doesn't capture the the diversity of the debate that's taking place in the country or even among uh, people that work on foreign policy. And and certainly, as we know, in this and many other issues, Democratic office holders are not representative of what their voters want on foreign policy. Very often, they end up signing up for a conventional view that their voters hate. Uh, And if you can find some polling that shows that Democrats are somewhat more supportive of the current policy in Ukraine versus Republicans, well, that's not surprising because that's what always happens when you have a president of one party pushing for something. Exactly. Partisanship drives people either to embrace it or to oppose it based on partisan cues. It's not even a question of substance. 
Uh, and, and, that's, and, and we saw the same thing happen under Trump. When Trump was perceived to be accommodating to Russia, even though he wasn't, uh, you had this idea crop up in a lot of minds on the Democratic side that they had to become fiercely anti-Russian to prove how anti-Trump they were. When just a few years before, they were the party that was advocating for engagement. And so you, you, you see how partisanship works a lot of this stuff, and it's not, it's not really based on understanding or, or appreciation for the merits of the policies. Um, uh, but let, let's come back to this uh, insurance policy model. This is the, the biggest problem with the whole piece, uh, because it comes down as, as a basically an endorsement of militarism as a whole, because in certain cases, you may find that you like the militarism. Uh, and so he, saying that the U.S. military is the world's anti-fascist insurance policy reeks <laughs> of indispensable nation hubris, where the purpose of our military is not to defend the United States, but to protect the world from recurring bouts of fascism, however broadly defined. Uh, and, and the bit about the military-industrial complex having its uses encourages complacency about the entrenched interests that make our foreign policy so militarized and overreaching. Uh, indulging militarism because you find it sometimes useful in certain cases is a good way to end up with a lot more Vietnams and Iraqs down the road because the same forces that produce those disasters are fed and strengthened when we indulge it in other cases. Uh, and it's also a, a strange thing to say, given or deteriorating state of our own political system, when you have people warning about creeping authoritarianism and you know, incipient fascism in America, that you can assume that the U.S. military is the anti-fascist insurance policy for the world. Uh, the thing is, you don't want to put that much power in the hands of any one state <laughs> because you can't trust any one state to wield it responsibly. And we know from the last 20 years how easily that power can be abused. And if the U.S. does become more authoritarian in the future, uh, that abuse is likely to increase. And so it's, it, it was just a, a terrible piece of analysis, a terrible piece of advocacy, or militarism, and I think in in another ten or fifteen years, people will look back on it as the the encapsulation of everything that's wrong with sort of centrist hysteria surrounding the war and surrounding Trump. Uh, it's it's really just the the epitome of what's wrong with a lot of uh, the way that Washington thinks about these things, uh, and and so it, in that sense, it's useful because it find a light on a lot of these pathologies. Yeah, I totally agree. And what bothers me most about this is waking up this morning, uh, and this is Tuesday that we're recording this, and seeing in the New York Times a piece as news analysis about the president's new strategy, foreign policy strategy, is to highlight the democratic, uh, the, the democracy promotion uh, of the of in his foreign policy and liken it to the 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 democracy promotion on the domestic front so he's commingling his campaign to highlight the um autocracies versus democracies there and here uh, and you saw this in his speech last week his uh, infamous red speech in which he talked about you know, the Republican MAGA types being a threat to democracy and the soul of the nation, um, at the same point talking about Putin and Orban and other authoritarians as threatening the soul of the world. 
and how it is the United States' role and obligation uh, to protect the democracy there and his role as president of the United States to protect it here. What I get from that is that if your position is a restraint or a realist position on the war and that you do not support this autocracies versus democracies frame and you do not support pouring more weapons into this war and prolonging it, that somehow that makes you in league with the right-wing MAGA fascist, quote-unquote fascist elements of this country. And what is that going to do? That is going to tell everybody on the center left uh, who have been challenging or skeptical of Biden's foreign policy that they are at risk of being tarred with the same brush as Tucker Carlson and Marjorie Taylor Greene and all these people that they find personally abhorrent. And those are people who, you know, might be in, you know, allies of ours, you know, in this in this um, fight for restraint, uh, who are, might be on the fence right now, and they're now are going to be cajoled uh, in keeping mar- their mouth shut, as, so as not to be tarred by that brush. And so I get really nervous when I see that, and I see this tyranny article, which is basically doing the same thing, but from you know, it, it's sort of taking it from a different direction. Um, is is saying that we are in a, 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 an existential fight here in the United States against fascism and, and abroad, and that the military is our vanguard against that. That's just, uh, I, it's not sitting well with me. Right. Well, it, it is, it does uh, create a, a dangerous situation where there there is this idea that people in the country represent some kind of fifth column as part of this this larger international uh, phenomenon, and, and so you you begin to conflate, as you say, they'll begin to conflate opposition to a particular policy, to opposition to our entire political system or to to the constitution, and and I think th- those things need to be kept very separate and and distinct uh, as much as possible, because it is possible to view with uh, distaste and abhorrence, and for instance, what Trump tried to do after the last election, uh, while still being very skeptical of Washington establishment foreign policy views, and, and the the two things are not the same, and they don't have to be linked at all, and, and they're not linked. Uh, and, and any any rhetorical move or any any framing that tries to push them together uh, is is very, I think it's bad for our politics. It's bad for our foreign policy debate, which is already, uh, as you as we know. Uh, Pretty toxic as it is. Right. And another thing about this article, Tierney's article, that really rubbed me the wrong way is this idea that Republican conservatives are turning away from the uh, support of the military because they're just following Trump's lead. So Trump is mad at the military because it's not doing what it says. And and in this case, supposedly that it wasn't serving as his own personal praetorian guard. Um, And so he got really mean and nasty and called the generals names and whatnot. And his Republican base just took his cue and it started turning against the military for the first time in decades. Well, that's bull. I mean, we know uh, from all the reporting that we've done for all all of the, um, uh, the, the, the coverage of the war, and the war policies over the last 20 years that that Americans have gotten disillusioned with the military um, systematically over the last two decades because of the lies, 
because of the failures, uh, because of the faithlessness with the veterans. And um, that's why in the politicization of it, the politicization of the military occurred way before Trump came to town. It continued through Trump. But you remember Petraeus sitting up there at these Senate hearings and talking about, um, you know, the azimuth of victory and it's right around the corner and just basically saying whatever they wanted to hear so he would get more money. And that's and that's repeated with with generals all the way down the line. And it's finally caught up to them. And so to tell half the country that they're they what they're thinking and how they feeling, how they're feeling is only because they're blindly following or bad orange man, you know, is an insult. And it's just as much of an insult as 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 Biden going there and saying that, you know, um every, you know, half the country that's following uh, Trump or had voted for him or is on the right side of the spectrum is somehow two steps away from fascism. It's sort of it's it's this this real dangerous stereotyping and oversimplification of the the cultural and political dynamics in this country that are going to further divide us. And then you bring in the whole war issue. We could continue to uh, fund, prolong a, a war that could destroy an entire country because we've commingled it with our domestic politics. I'd like to welcome Lyle Goldstein to the show again. Lyle is a director of the Asia Engagement Program at Defense Priorities. Formerly, he served as research professor at the U.S. Naval War College for 20 years. In that post, he was awarded the Superior Civilian Service Medal for founding and leading the China Maritime Studies Institute. His main areas of expertise include both maritime security and nuclear security issues, uh, and he's also published seven books on Chinese strategy, including Meeting China Halfway in 2015. Thank you for joining us again, Lyle. So glad to be with you, Kelly. Uh, I might also just add, I'm, I'm now also um, a professor at Watson at the Watson Institute at Brown University. So I'm very oh, that's wonderful. To be there now, so that's yeah. No, that's great. We've we've had uh, at least one person from the institute here on the show and refer to their work. A lot. So that's great. Um, so you're an expert in strategy, Lyle. Can you tell us if it is good strategy for our Washington leadership to be parading to Taiwan to declare undying loyalty and defense to the island against the Chinese? And secondly, what kind of strategy are we seeing in the Chinese reaction to all this, which at this point includes military exercises with the Russians, firing missiles into the Taiwan Strait, and deploying surveillance drones everywhere. What, what what can we make of all of this? Well, uh, maybe I'll take the second part uh, up front. Uh, it we certainly see a, a kind of escalation in uh, escalation spiral that is developing. Uh, no surprise to anybody who's followed the issue. I mean, I, I spend uh, you know my evenings generally re watching uh, Chinese military TV and and I read their uh, Chinese military media. Uh, and I could, you know, uh, it was absolutely clear that uh, that, uh, you know, they they are uh, holding the trigger tightly. And uh, so none of these moves have surprised me. And uh, and they're significant. I mean, you know, shooting missiles over the island, you know, that's a pretty 
uh, quite a major step. Uh, and um, we, we may have seen the end of the median line. The median line right down the center of the Taiwan Strait has kept the peace for uh, so many decades. Um, so this would be a shame if, uh, if we lose that. Um, some of these, um, you know, foundations for uh, keeping the peace. Uh, and uh, now we also see, uh, well, this is not entirely new, but we've start, start to see uh, the movement of Chinese forces on a regular basis. And they, in, in, uh, in Chinese, they, they use the, the form, the word normalization, you know, Chang Tai Hua. And, and this means like they're going to make it absolutely normal that Chinese uh, forces operate all around the island. Um, so, you know, the, the, there are major consequences of uh, what I think was an extremely um, uh, a reckless uh, move um, on the part of Speaker Pelosi. And, um, you know, I think Tom Friedman said it well. He said, this is utterly reckless. And coming back to your original question, you know, is this good strategy? You know, e even if, you know, even if you are a, uh, how to put it, a very strong advocate for Taiwan, I'm not, but some people, a lot of people in Washington are. Um, you know, I, I saw actually many people who, who usually take that position were, were also urging Speaker Pelosi not to go, saying this is a horrible time to do this, you know, um, uh, and in the very worst case, you may be setting the United States up for a two-front war, which, uh, you know, and by the way, because uh, I, you know, I speak Russian and watch the Russian press, the Russians were uh, beside themselves with joy to see this develop because uh, this is exactly what they want. They want uh, America stretched to the breaking point, which is exactly what we'd be if somehow we got sucked into a war in the Taiwan Strait. So it's, it's bad strategy. It's bad policy. Generally, we're in a collision course with China. We need to um, get away from that to, um, you know, to, to avoid this war, which um, somehow the Washington establishment somehow seems to crave, but this is uh, yeah. would be exceedingly dangerous and costly to the United States. Do you see any diplomatic efforts to tamp down the tensions and hostilities that we're seeing today? Mm -hmm. Well, I was a little bit, you know, how to put it, after, after the decision was taken for the speaker to go, uh, and even just in the days running up to that. I mean, you know, I, I, I do applaud the administration in, in trying to um, uh, tamp down tensions and trying to um, keep this from, from getting out of control. I mean, it, it could have been much worse, uh, as I'm sure most people realize. I mean, the U.S. has, has many military cards to play. It seemed that uh, the the rumors certainly were that the Pentagon, the National Security Council all opposed this move. And I was glad to see in the days after this when things, you know, easily could have ratcheted up very quickly um, uh, and even crossed over the threshold. But but fortunately, um, I think people in D.C., uh, certainly in the White House, uh, you know, it, it really dawned on them that, that we have to work very hard not to. Uh, let a war break out here so that I didn't see a major um, uh, new movements of forces. You know, the, the Reagan was already kind of in the area uh, as, as was another um, a smaller carrier. But uh, in my view, it was fortunate that we tried to keep, keep the uh, lid on things as it were from, from a military point of view. Uh, now I know there was a, a, str a straight transit, uh, I think about a week ago, 
uh, by two cruisers. So, you know, I, how to put it, I would not have recommended such an action, but uh, I do think, you know, it seems to be that Washington at this point has realized the error and is kind of doing the minimum. Uh, so I, I think that's probably prudent. Uh, but, uh, but again, you know, we, we, to get back to the, you know, I think the, the foundational point that your question was getting at, no, there's not like a serious diplomatic track. There's no, I don't see any plan in DC, really in Beijing either, to try to reach a kind of, um, uh, get onto a path that, that, that cre creates a more stable situation where we're not on the verge of war. Uh, this is going to occur and reoccur and reoccur. And if we roll the dice, you know, a dozen times, guess what? <laughs> uh, one of these times, a war will result. We need so we need to have that diplomatic path very much so, Kelly. Thank you. I have to ask one more question. Are we learning the the wrong lessons from the Ukraine Russia situation, and mm -hmm. that? We and I and I haven't, you know, I've heard I'm not making this up. I've heard others vocalize this, maybe not recently, but this assumption that the Chinese are looking at the quote unquote international coalition that has risen up to oppose and challenge Putin's aggression in Ukraine and taken from that perhaps some moderation or a moderating effect in that they don't wouldn't want to attack Taiwan for fear that they would meet the same fate. And is that misjudging the situation completely? Yeah, it, it's definitely a complicated situation. No question about it. Uh, I am, uh, I have a, a large stack of articles on my desk here where I've been collecting, you know, Chinese analyses of the Ukraine war. Uh, so I, I, you know, talk to me in a few months, I should have a, good write-up on, you know, I've, I've dissected a little bit of it, you know, some of the tactical and operational lessons the Chinese are taking, you know, with respect to urban warfare, drones, any ship cruise missiles, and so forth. But I mean, your question is much, much more strategic, I think. And, and yes, I, I think in a way, Washington is totally misreading this. Um, now, look, uh, I, I don't doubt that Xi Jinping and his advisors are somewhat sobered by what they're seeing in Ukraine. You know, I mean, the costs of war are plain to see. Uh, the misjudgments, uh, there have been many uh, on by the Kremlin. And uh, so I think surely uh, this has probably um, caused them to be more cautious. However, you know, there are many reasons why um, China might see itself as in a much more favorable position. After all, Taiwan is about one fifteenth the size of Ukraine, uh, and uh, China's military, for a variety of reasons, and I'm happy to go through them, but is is significantly stronger, really, in all respects except nuclear, than the Russian armed forces. I mean, their military budget is about four to five times that of Russia. So, in terms of uh, preparations, you know, munition stocks, um, and I, I would even say uh, probably professionalism. Uh, and proficiency, you know, I, I do expect uh, probably China would uh, be quite a bit more successful. And let's remember, you can't, whereas Ukraine is being continuously reinforced right over, all, over that very long land border, which Russia can't possibly shut down. 
That's not the case with Taiwan. Taiwan is an island. An island is kind of inherently hard to conquer. But on the other hand, the island can be very easily isolated. And I expect from day one, Taiwan would be completely on its own. So, so yeah, I think um, one final lesson I'll just say, which I think is a misread, is that a lot of people are saying, oh, well, you know, had we only helped Ukraine more, <laughs> you know, well, of course, I know you, you and Daniel know very well that that's um, probably uh, got it backwards, that um, had Ukraine, you know, declared its neutrality, probably this war never would have happened. So what about, you know, the lesson here to learn is that there should be a strong diplomatic track and that uh, leaders in Washington and Taipei should not play with fire. And this constant flow of weapons, you know, stingers, javelins, HIMARS, you name it. Of course, China is watching all of this and maybe may well be saying to itself, hey, time to go before all that stuff gets unloaded at the pier in, you know, in, in, uh, in Taiwan's port. So, I mean, you know, that to me is a very, very dangerous situation because at this point, there's a lot of impetus to load the island up with just tons of fancy, uh, fancy weapons. And by the way, a lot of uh, people in, in the U.S. getting completely rich off this. That's, that's uh, undeniable, too. Well, thanks for coming on the show again. We appreciate it. And uh, well, sort of in, in connection with that, uh, one of the things we've seen in Washington, learning the wrong lessons from the Ukraine situation, is the idea that the U.S. has to now really has to make an explicit commitment to Taiwan. And so there's all of this talk about strategic clarity that started bubbling up a couple of years ago, and it's really gotten much louder over the last year. And the president, of course, made his ill-advised statements about the U.S. commitment to defend Taiwan on several occasions. Uh, can can Biden claw that back? Can he can he undo the damage that has already been done there, or are we have we already uh, essentially committed ourselves as far as the Chinese are concerned, and and they're not going to take seriously denials uh, of that commitment in the future? Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, question, and you know the ambiguity becomes uh, more and more. Um, you know, questionable, uh, certainly around D.C. I mean, you could almost say there's a consensus, which I, I'm sad to say, certainly on the Hill, you know, that that ambiguity is wrongheaded. Um, you know, I feel very strongly that, um, you know, the day that ambiguity ends, the day that we develop strategic, you know, uh, strategic clarity or that's the term then then uh, of our commitment is the day that China will probably attack. Uh, you know, to me, um, the people who, who study the history know that the delicate, uh, very delicate foundation of all of U.S.-China relations rests on this, you know, on this one China policy. And are, are we going to totally junk it, which is what the Washington, the Washington establishment seems to be ready to do? Um, but have they considered really the consequences? I mean, I was just reviewing some of the history and it, it you know, it turns out that the PLA was actually shelling, you know, some of these offshore islands, uh, Kinmen or Jinmen or Quimoy, however you want to pronounce it, until 1979. Right. They were still firing shells at this island because they needed to make it clear to the U.S. that the U.S. should, should butt out of this. Uh, now, look, I have studied the Taiwan issue through and through, uh, and, um, you know, I'd be, I would love to discourse on the history. I mean... Americans don't like to talk about history, but, you know, how to put it, look over this history for yourself. You can see that uh, 
presidents like Roosevelt and Truman stated emphatically, not no ambiguity here, emphatically that Taiwan was part of China. So please review those documents. If you respect those two presidents, Roosevelt and Truman, do the do the diligence and check out the history. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a reason why really um, the most fabulous museum of Chinese artifacts is not in Beijing or Shanghai or Wuhan or anywhere else in the mainland. It's in Taipei, folks. Check it out. The Palace Museum in Taipei uh, has the best collection. Why? Because this is part of a civil war. And until Americans grapple with that fact, then uh, we're going to continuously have problems with that. And just like we had very big difficulties with civil wars in Vietnam, right? Should we ever gotten involved in that? Absolutely not. Afghanistan was also a civil war, right? Among, you know, secularists and the Taliban. How did that go for the United States? So this is really just playing the same old record and Americans need to avoid uh, these civil wars. We have no no, uh, major national security interests here. Now, you know, people say, well, we have to defend Japan, but I disagree. You know, Japan is extremely defensible and Japan's defense does not rely on some kind of defense of Taiwan. Actually, it's just that's just kind of historical longing for when Taiwan was a colony of Japan. So we need to resist that, even though many uh, seem to hold that that's true. It's just wrong. In terms of playing with fire, we see a lot of people in Congress pushing for new measures uh, that would uh, essentially, you try to rewrite existing law on U.S. policy towards Taiwan, um, so-called Taiwan Policy Act, pushed by uh, Senator Menendez, uh, among other things, would designate Taiwan as a major non-NATO ally. Uh, of course, that that status doesn't involve explicit security commitments, but it does entail a lot more in the way of weapon supplies. Uh, how dangerous would it be for Taiwan and the U.S. if this bill became law? Yeah, I think it's extremely dangerous. I mean, I was just warned by a Chinese colleague uh, just a couple of days ago, said, you know, very clearly this this you, you've just seen the fourth Taiwan crisis. When you pass that legislation, this you will have your fifth Taiwan crisis. Uh, and, you know, in that statement is, is a clear threat that this you know may be the one that, that leads to uh, to all out war. So, you know, I, I'm shocked at how um, how reckless uh people on the Hill seem to be when they're considering what is obviously the most crucial uh, bilateral issue. I mean, they're not just risking war. They're not just um, um, uh, courting the possibility of war with a with a major nuclear power, which is fully capable of destroying the United States uh, within a few hours. Um, you know, I don't doubt that for a minute. I just finished a, a, a major review of Chinese uh, nuclear modernization earlier in the year. And, you know, Americans have to realize that, yes, they don't have the nuclear capabilities that Russia has, but neither do we. <laughs> but but uh, the, the Chinese arsenal is fully capable. So uh, th- this is, uh, you know, I think at any level could be considered um, a foolhardy, reckless, crazy, whatever you want to say. But then there are a whole raft of other issues, you know, from the global economy, uh, you know, development, you know, all around the world. Uh, and then, um Let's not forget about climate change and, and those critical issues that we have to work with China on. So, you know, it's I just find it shocking that uh, people are willing to um, throw out this one China policy in such a casual way without looking over the history and understanding that, that what Kissinger and Nixon did, um, they didn't do everything right. That's for sure. But this they did do right. And they understood 
that U.S.-China relations were much more important uh, than this little island. Uh, certainly, and and we see that they uh, they managed to establish a policy that has successfully kept peace uh, for over 40 years. Uh, you were talking about the, the shelling that the Chinese used to be doing uh, back when Taiwan was uh, formerly a U.S. ally. Uh, that, that doesn't happen anymore, or at least it hasn't been happening for the last several decades, we may be moving back towards a time when it does happen again, because we're trying to to rewrite the rules. Um, yeah, and I would, thing, you know, one thing I tell people is if, you know, Hong Kong, everybody was watching Hong Kong, of course, in 2019, 2020, and it's sad what happened. But did Americans think for a minute that they might go to war over Hong Kong? No. And frankly, the same logic should apply here. There should be no question in the United States going to war uh, over Taiwan and all these steps, um, you know, on the Hill and so forth, just make that war uh, more likely. Right. And you were talking about ships transiting through the strait uh, again after Pelosi's visit. Uh, and there, of course, have been many that have passed through before that. Uh, how concerned are you that something might happen during one of those transits, uh, something like the Hainan incident uh, with the planes? Uh, that happened back in 2001 that ends up creating an incident that then leads to escalation? Well, there I'm a little less concerned. I mean, as you know, you know, having worked for the Navy for for 20 years, I'm well acquainted with, with those missions and how they work. And, uh, I, you know, if anybody thinks China was intimidated by two U.S. surface ships going through the strait, then the, you need to study the military balance better. I mean, China could put those ships... Uh, uh, down on the bottom of the strait, you know, in, in hours, if probably less than that. Um, so I, I don't think they really have any deterrent value. I mean, it's purely symbolic. Uh, now, China does not question the, um, you know, the law of the sea and, and the right of the United States to transit. They've always said they recognize that it's legally permissible, uh, and nor have they tried in any major way to stop uh, U.S. ships from doing that. Um, but they have said this is extremely unfriendly, and Americans may want to reflect on that a little. I mean, would you like to see the Chinese fleet parading through the Florida Strait um, every month or so? Um, I wouldn't. You know, I, I don't think we should welcome that, but that's where we're going. I mean, China will have a global fleet, um, if not immediately, then in the uh, even in the medium term. They already have ships in the Atlantic, uh, and uh, that's where we're headed. I don't think we should welcome that future where we're constantly doing, um, uh, making um, even symbolic acts that are clearly um, unfriendly and threatening gestures, even if they're legal. I think we'll have to leave it at that. Uh, today we were out of time, but uh, thanks very much, Lyle Goldstein, Defense Priorities. Uh, we appreciate your time. Thanks. Yeah, so happy to talk with you both. Thanks, Lyle. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter, Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.